Hi, this is Steve Harkadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, September 20th, 2011, and our special guest tonight is Bob Glitter. Bob, welcome. Thanks for having me on your show. We appreciate your comment on the show. Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, part of Blackboard Collaborate, and my Web 2.0 Labs project at web2.0labs.com. Coming up in November is our first ever Library 2.011, the Future of Libraries Conference. It's two days, it's free, it is model of the Global Education Conference. It should be a blast. We've got 137 proposals so far. People from 133 countries have signed up for the conference. Really exciting. Also in November, our second Global Education Conference, the 14th to the 18th, five days, 24 hours a day. If you missed it last year, please join us. It's really a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education, uh, September 27th, Cecilia de Oliveira on MIT's Open Courseware. On the 29th, a special show about iPads in the classroom. Peter Cookson on Children's Education Bill of Rights. Timothy Wilson on October 11th, written a book called Redirect that I have just loved on cultural narratives. Personal and cultural narratives, uh, really fascinating cognitive psychologist who I think well, should be well worth our time. Gina Bianchini of Ming, formerly of Ming, now of Mighty Bell, comes on to talk about her new project. Lee Crockett on his book Literacy is Not Enough. Mark Sermon from Mozilla Foundation on Open Badges on October 20th. Mike Mariner on Road Trip Nation on the 25th of October. Then the two virtual conferences, and Alan Blankstein joins to talk about improving individual schools. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all up in full recorded versions on futureofeducation.com. We heard from Sam Chautain last week. There was a problem with the recording software. The recording will come. It's just going to take a little bit longer than usual. But uh, before that, Howard Gardner, the DeFores, Bob Compton, lots of fun. I don't know, uh, uh, Bob Glenner, if you know Bob Compton, but he was just on the show. And uh, I wonder if you do know him. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> Um, most recently, one called the Finland Phenomenon, and then before that, a couple on uh, the carried the title Two Million Minutes. Anyway, did you recognize him from that, Bob? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, so I'm now going to give you each permission to indicate where you're listening from. Look forward, and then on the left-hand side of the map, you'll see some icons. One is a star or a sun. If you click on that and then click on the map, you can let us know where you're listening from. It's fun to have you shout out in the chat as well. For a small crowd, we're sure geographically diverse tonight. India, New Zealand, Bob, why am I thinking that you in the Philippines? Uh, 
I'm sorry, Bill. All red. Anyway, well, this is fun to have a, a small but diverse group wherever you're listening from. Or if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate it and are glad you've taken the time. So, Bob, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, you sent me three films. Uh, one was called Education for What? The other was another was Democracy Left Behind, and the third was Lessons from the Real World. Would you mind sort of putting those into context, the context of your own career and um, and your interest in education? Sure. I'm a um I'm retired now, but I was a longtime sociology professor at San Jose State University in California. And um, but I also dealt with education and social change and I've been making documentaries for around twenty five years, most of which are on various PBS stations. And I've had a long time interest in education since I was in graduate school, mostly about what I didn't like about education and um, how we might be able to change it. So here at San Jose State, I was in sociology, but I directed a number of interdisciplinary projects that focused on um, how education can impact the surrounding community um, near San Jose State and how education, by doing that, how education then engages students more in the learning process. And uh, the three documentaries you mentioned follow along those lines. The first one, Education for What, is about service learning and higher education um, in metropolitan campuses. So two, two colleges in the West Coast, two in the Midwest, and two in the East. And um, it's used uh, at universities across the country to talk about how we can engage students in service learning, which is actually getting students to work on problems in the community and then reflecting on those problems when they come back to the classroom um, and, and in the larger curriculum. Uh, Democracy Left Behind, I did in 2007, uh, it's still been airing, and um, it's also used by various colleges and universities, and that showed how No Child Left Behind has narrowed the curriculum in uh, most public schools. Uh, to language arts and math, and um, as a result, we're turning out students who are um, not very informed about the issues that will dramatically affect their lives, issues that underlie our election campaigns, and, and so forth. So that's why it's democracy left behind, that we're, we're no child left behind is leaving us with an uninformed uh, group of students and future um, participants in the election process. And my latest show, Lessons for the Real World, is a follow-up to that where I focused on schools in Portland, Oregon that weave social issues through the curriculum as a way of engaging students and making uh, learning, uh, reading and writing and math and science and all that um, be more meaningful. Um, it's, it's a type of place-based education focus. 
So that's a brief summary of those three, and um, I've been passionate about changing education. And unfortunately, even though there are a lot of isolated instances of very good teaching um, around uh, place-based education, there's tremendous pressure at the federal level and at the state level to mostly improve test scores um, in, the in the abstract of what's going on in, in, in students' lives. Just turn your mic off when you're perfect like that when you're done with that answer and I'll know to keep going. So we've seen a number of films uh, in the last couple of years and apart from waiting for Superman, most of them uh, sort of have limited showings and uh, are often highly personal films, Race to Nowhere, Bob Compton's films, your films that you probably know of others. Um, it, it financially, is this hard to do? Uh, yes, it is actually. I'm. Uh, um, I have all my own equipment, and um, I don't have a background as a filmmaker. But I, I got involved uh, with a local PBS station uh, that aired a film I did in the early '80s, and I became, I came in as a producer director, and then I gradually picked up the rest of the skills and. Uh, San Jose State University was supportive in getting me uh, equipment uh, to be able to make the films as well as the local PBS station. So uh, that was very helpful. And um, sometimes I get hired and, uh, to do documentaries, and uh, the money I get from that I use to support other projects which um, I, I feel need to be made. So lessons from the real world, I just uh, felt it needed to be made, and I, and I went out and did it. And um, so, yeah, from a financial standpoint, I don't think, aside from Ken Burns and a few other people, very few people make money from documentary production. But it's usually a, uh, you know, something that they really want to do. They feel they can make a difference. And I quickly discovered that when I did my first film, which is on uh, Soledad Prison here in California in 1984, um, more people watch that film locally, around 50,000, than are there uh, on the local PBS station. That I would have had to write a best-selling best book in sociology to equal that, that number. So I could tell that I could reach a lot more people by doing documentaries, particularly if they aired on, um, on television. So we've talked recently on the show about this sort of intriguingly recursive problem in education which is if education doesn't help students to become good at thinking about complex problems, then they're not going to be very good as adults in thinking about education. And, and that maybe there's this cycle that occurs where it's very hard to think of education differently or to think thoughtfully about the ideals or goals of education. Um, have you noticed this, and uh, does it concern you? Well, I think um, what you're talking about is that uh, if parents go through a certain type of educational experience, um, one that usually isn't very engaging, often they think that's the educational norm, and so it's hard to to uh, get them to buy into doing uh, dramatic changes in the school system. Um, but I think 
my experience, for example, in Portland, Oregon, was there were a lot of parents that wanted to see some changes because they saw the results of their students. They saw students that, when they were engaged in the curriculum and when they were engaged in real problems in the community, that they didn't worry so much about um, their reading skills and their math skills because those happen naturally. The students learned how to uh, do research um, uh, because they were researching a real problem and they had to read about that problem or they had to do math around analyzing data around a problem. So um, that concerned the community and concerned the parents. Or they had to interview the parents and then the parents got hooked into the process. So. Uh, I think you're right that um, oftentimes people see test scores as the normal um, judge of, of what's happening with the uh, school system, but um, I think there are other possibilities, but uh, unfortunately the, the national narrative has been going in the opposite direction. So I want to take that even a little bit deeper, and you can tell me where to stop. But in education for what, there's a quote um, that there's a fundamental ambivalence about democracy and our democracy, that, that we're not comfortable with genuinely democratic ideals because they butt up against the social conformity of commercialism. I think some of those are my words from my notes. But is this kind of part of a deeper issue or problem? Am I reading too much into this, or um, do we are we sort of in a very dangerous place of not actually believing that uh, it's important to practice democracy? Well, I think uh, we are in a very dangerous place. I think just if you follow what's going on, and uh, particularly in the Republican Party debate now. Um, around critical issues facing the country that, um, you know, uh, it's like we have this pervasive anti-intellectualism in American society. And I think that um, um, in a lot of ways, uh, public employees and teachers in particular have been denigrated, the kinds of jobs that they do. But I think um, there's a tendency to want to just have simplistic answers and to, to, to very complex questions, and that's one part of it. Um, excuse me a sec. <coughs> the other part is that um, I think one of the things that's happened with democracy in our country is that we particularly with um, all the blogs that are out there and so forth, is that everybody thinks everybody's opinion has equal merit and equal value and is equally true. And that's one of the things that's been a problem with discussions about climate change. So even though 99% of the world's scientists think that climate change is caused by human actions or, or human actions contribute to climate change, the 1% that disagree with that or give an absolutely equal value and so everybody just throws out all this stuff and so that's one of the real dangers that, that I'm seeing now with democracy. So I'm, uh, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure we necessarily 
want to get too partisan here, but um, I'm not sure these are actually new issues either. And, and, I, and I want to ask this question, which is, I feel like we've, we've done the same thing for a long time with prison reform. We've known what what works well in terms of reducing recidivism, but it just feels as though our political system as a whole has trouble um, reaching thoughtful conclusions. Well, I, I think you're right about that. I actually, here at San Jose State University, we had a prison program at Soledad Prison that resulted in my first documentary, but we, we ran a program for 10 years in which uh, a group of 40 people who were incarcerated got bachelor's degrees. And the recidivism rate, which is the rate of return to prison for that group, was 1%. The recidivism rate for the general prison population was 70%. So even though this program showed tremendous merit um, by educating people who had then not returned to prison, uh, the program was killed after 10 years. And, um, and so prisons have gone back to actually, particularly because of budget crises, have just gone back to locking people up. And um, it's cost, obviously, state budgets uh, a, a tremendous amount of money. So I think uh, you're right. We know we kind of know what works. And I think in education, we also kind of know what works as well. I mean, I believe that place-based education and, and uh, educating students around issues that are of concern to their lives, the lives of their parents and their communities, makes logical sense. And it makes sense when you actually introduce it in the classroom. Uh, but instead of doing that, and instead of using that as a way of motivating students, we turned around and said the best way to teach students is to drill them hour after hour, particularly in, uh, in low-income neighborhoods or low-income schools uh, with three hours of math, three hours of language arts, and hope that they do well on the tests, and, um, and so forth. So let's move into Democracy Left Behind, the next film, uh, chronologically, I think. And uh, you talk about the legacy of No Child Left Behind. I think you did a nice job of sort of balancing the noble aspirations versus the sort of resulting changes that took place. Um, do you want to describe uh, kind of the consequence of what you saw from uh, those interviews on the impact of No Child Left Behind? Well, um, in, uh, in Democracy Left Behind, uh, the way that got started was um, I was teaching a course in the College of Education here, and the students uh, were telling me about their, uh, their student teaching experiences where they weren't allowed to do anything. The uh, teachers were just teaching to test, and, and the uh, students who were in the classroom were just completely turned off. And so I used that as a bridge to do this documentary. And the local dean here, Susan Myers, at San Jose State at the time, had done a study of, I think, 900 school districts in which they showed that even in middle-class districts that the curriculum had been dramatically narrowed and that teachers didn't have time to talk about things that were important to them and were important to the uh, they thought important to students, and um, so that that's what led me into this kind of uh, critique of K through 12. No child left behind, but I also tried to show that um, 
other teachers could do other kinds of things. And so I focused, uh, I ended the show with 10 minutes on a, a small school district outside Boston, uh, Hudson, that's in uh, Massachusetts where they had weaved social issues from K through 12 all on through the curriculum. And you had kindergartners talking about um, uh, quilting projects and all kinds of things that were helping um, um, uh, single parent or people who are homeless and so forth and showed that even kindergartners could, could understand some of these issues. And then I had another class here in Silicon Valley that um, where students were doing, uh, student teachers were doing a uh, consumerism curriculum and they showed the kindergartners could uh, learn to talk about the difference between needs and wants and um, do a whole project around this. And so, um, uh, which is another aspect of dealing, I think, with education. Oftentimes we think that young students, uh, particularly elementary school students, aren't capable of dealing with social issues and they, they're more than capable. They're exposed to those issues every day outside the classroom. And um, and they want to talk about those issues and they want to feel that they have some power and control over their lives. It's a great quote and I think it may actually be in Lessons from the Real World where one of the educators says, it's really not fair to expect these students to graduate at age 17 or 18 and then to take on the responsibilities of being an adult in the world without having experienced a lot of these issues uh, growing up. Uh, yeah, I think that was a good quote. That's uh, from a woman who um, is on the school board in, um, in Portland, Oregon, um, and also teaches at Portland State. And, um, and that's true. Oftentimes we think that students will become automatic, automatically become active participants in a democratic society. Uh, whereas uh, if that was the case, why don't we expect students to automatically learn how to uh, do math and do reading and do science and all these other things. But we, we focus on reading and math and to some degree science. But we really don't focus on engaging students and uh, what it takes to be an active participant in a democracy. And unless we do that, you know, then what do we expect? We expect them to possibly vote every two to four years, not be very well informed about issues that underlie election campaigns, probably not run for office. And uh, so, how can we have an active democracy um, with those with, with that kind of uh, citizenry? There's a very well-spoken superintendent, I think, from the Hudson District who says that the purpose of public schools is to create a public in which a democracy can thrive. And I really liked sort of the straightforwardness of having a definition of education. Is that a definition you agree with? And do you think that that's broadly held? I think I agree with that definition, but I don't know that it's broadly held. But I think, um, uh, unfortunately, I think schools have um, become totally wrapped up in, in uh, just achieving high test scores rather than looking at the bigger picture of what are we preparing students to uh, become. 
and um, what kinds of citizens are we preparing and, and them to become and what kind of um, society do we want them to occupy and how do we expect them to help change that society or to improve that society. So instead we become, uh, uh, we're comparing ourselves to other countries based on, um, on uh, test scores and so forth. And I think the test scores would happen um, would rise automatically, actually, if students were engaged in the learning process, that um, uh, if they were really engaged in the issues that, that concern their lives, that concern the society, that they thought were important, then they would, they would become motivated to, to, uh, to do the things that would actually probably increase test scores. Instead, we reversed that whole equation and we said, um, let's just focus on increasing test scores in the abstract and not uh, think about the larger consequences. So um, if we really want to, uh, you know, a uh, informed public, then we need to spend some time and energy in the classroom uh, creating that informed public. But again, um, both the Bush administrations and the Obama administration, unfortunately, seems to have uh, uh, been taking that um, in the opposite direction. On the other hand, we could say that we don't want an informed public because if we had an informed public, we probably wouldn't have the types of candidates running for public office we now do. Maybe we'd have a more critical society and um, we'd have to make some serious changes. Yeah, as I watched your films, I, you know, I did ask myself the question, uh, this purpose of public schools, creating a public in which democracy can thrive, I've wondered, was there actually a point in American education when that was the stated perspective of the majority? Or is this, a, a, this, is this always been sort of the minority position, but a more thoughtful one? I think it's actually always been, I mean, I'm not an education historian, but I, I think it's, it's been the minority position. Um, thinking back to when I was in school, uh, in elementary school in the 50s, uh, we used, in Southern California, we used to have, um, the only times we focused on issues was when we'd have a nuclear, uh, um, nuclear attack and we'd have to pretend nuclear attack, they'd, they'd throw an alarm and everybody would go into their desks and then they'd ring the all clear and everybody would come out as if we could survive a, a nuclear attack on, uh, on, you know, on Los Angeles. So I think, um, um, you know, John Dewey obviously wrote about this, this kind of stuff and other people have over the years, but I think uh, the main purpose of public education was never to actually create an informed public. I think the general purpose was to uh, create workers that were capable of, uh, of reading labels and, uh, you know, educated enough to contribute to the economy. I don't think we worried so much about having an informed electorate in terms of uh, having an active democratic society. So your films really focus on specific schools and specific programs that you feel are doing a really good job in some way. Has that led you to any sense of kind of larger policy decisions uh, when you think about education from a policy level? Have you come to any conclusions about what we might do to increase that opportunity for these kinds of schools and activities to thrive? 
So public policy is difficult to uh, to change, but I think that um, I had toyed with an idea here. First, uh, I was sarcastic about it, but then I actually thought maybe here at San Jose State we ought to have a political literacy test to graduate from the university, and um, which people actually showed that they understood some of the underlying issues that. Uh, that uh, underlie American society as well as uh, the world, America's place in the world. But I think um, in terms of changing public policy, um, we would have, you know, we would have to create a whole new way or a different way of evaluating students. And I think there is some move in that direction to, to uh, among some people, to shift from a, to a portfolio evaluations and other ways of evaluating students rather than straight out tests. But um, I think a lot of um, elected officials, um, unfortunately, are have come out of trouble with the same public schools or private schools as um, uh, are causing the problem in the first place. And so, to get them on board would take a tremendous amount of effort. And uh, there are people lobbying for those kinds of efforts, um, such as people in the rethinking schools movement and so forth. But it's um, um, they're distinctly in the minority. One other aspect of all of this, however, is there's a you know a huge number of teachers in the United States, and they have a lot of potential power, especially if they're aligned with parents and uh, and various community members. It's just figuring out a way of putting uh, articulating uh, you know a vision that makes sense to everybody in order to to get policymakers to listen. I think for me, one of the most intriguing aspects of our current moment in time is the degree to which social media is allowing educators to form their own um, kind of political voices in a way that's not dissimilar, say, from what's happening in Egypt or in, in, in countries where the question is the governance, but here. Um, the conversation we're having as education. And that intrigues me because I think it actually is going on a little. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there are, are discussions in the social media. I'm not as active in social media networking as many other people. But um, um, yeah, I think that, that probably gives some hope. I think. I think what needs to happen if we really want a fundamental change is that we need to, um, first off, probably change a lot of our colleges of education so that students are educated in a way that when they become teachers that they see the importance of um, um, creating informed citizens um, as part of the uh, as part of the curriculum, an important part of the curriculum. And um, and then they in turn will then educate people who have become parents who will be um, concerned about those issues as well. Um, and th and many of those people are connected on social media sites. But um, I'm not. Just I don't follow a lot of social media sites uh, uh, on an active basis. I I probably couldn't comment too much on that. That's a little bit of a double-edged sword. You've identified that. One of the things social media does is it magnifies all kinds of voices. Um, at the same time, it does allow for conversations that previously couldn't take place. Have you ever visited a democratic school? 
Uh, yeah, actually, uh, there's a, um, <coughs> a school that I filmed on my latest show, Lessons from the Real World, um, where the students had a lot of um, say in how the, uh, the school could be run. And uh, I filmed um, one of their uh, uh, all school uh, meeting in which the students were able to voice concerns. Uh, the school also had its own ju judiciary system and um, which uh, students were able to bring problems and grievances and, and uh, discuss what the remedy should be. So I think those kinds of schools are very important to giving students a, a voice and at the same time however uh, they take away from other kinds of activities that um, oftentimes schools think are, are higher priorities so you have to trade off do we want to spend time doing democratic education and that way teaching students how to articulate points of view teaches at the time of compromising and, and debating um, where do we want to just focus again on um, preparing students to take tests. Um, so, that's, so that's difficult. The second aspect is I think that schools have had to wrestle with is how do you, do you evaluate students um, who have participated in the, in the democratic educational system. But most places, uh, and it's not just uh, K-12 education, um, um, higher education itself is not a very democratic institution. So uh, even though we have uh, academic senates and um, um, faculty, groups that represent faculty and, and we have student government, usually the day-to-day -day operation of a university is not typically democratic. Faculty have control over their own classrooms typically, but you know, the whole place is not usually run as a democracy. Yeah, which does lead to a very interesting set of questions about sort of the outcome or consequence of that form of education. So the, uh, there may be say, a cascading set of expectations from a business then the graduate school then to um, university or college then the high school. Um, so it would be very hard to measure the outcomes of uh, alternative education or progressive education, democratic education. Um, has any, have you come across anything where the students themselves who've gone through these kind of educational, place-based education or educational systems have said, I would never go anywhere else or this is what I want for my kids? Is it that clear cut? I haven't, um, usually when I interview uh, students with that, I haven't interviewed parents who have gone through all that, um, but um, I think the students who have gone through those programs clearly say, or students who have transferred, I have interviewed students who have transferred from a traditional school to a more progressive school, and they clearly favor the more progressive school, and they say uh, they wouldn't go back to the, to the other kind of school environment. Um, here at San Jose State, when we uh, when I've uh, hitted up interdisciplinary classes and uh, students inadvertently ended up in those uh, projects where we combined three or four classes, uh, focusing on from different disciplines, focusing on one problem in the community, students who have never taken those in normal normal circumstances once they enrolled 
and got involved. They said, oh, we're really glad we took food for I think 90% said, we're really glad we got involved with this. It's really changed our perspective on education. It changed our perspective on dealing with sexual issues as part of uh, our educational experience. So, um, in Democracy Left Behind, at some point, somebody used the phrase love of learning. And I was kind of shocked. I sat up and thought, uh, wow, in all of these conversations, how rarely that phrase comes up, but how important it seems to be. Um, uh, did, did that strike you as well? Do you remember the scene? Um, I, I actually don't remember the scene exactly, but a lot of um, I think a lot of students that I have filmed, and, and all three of these, uh, uh, all three of these um, uh, documentaries, um, have evidence that they have a lot of learning, and um, you know, they you can just feel the the uh, you get that sense when you almost immediately when you walk into a particular classroom or a particular school where that this kind of education goes on. That um, that they're actively engaged, that they feel that it makes a difference whether they're in school or not. I think students at most schools don't feel it really makes a difference to the larger society whether they're in school or not, and they don't feel it makes a difference in their lives. The school wants them there because they'll lose money if, if, the, if the students stop attending or their test scores will go down. But I think. Um, most students don't feel that, hey, I have to really be at school today because otherwise our society is going to be affected or otherwise my community is going to be affected or otherwise my fellow students are going to be affected and my parents' lives are going to be affected and, and, and the future of the world is going to be affected. So I think if, if we were able to create an educational system where students actually said, hey, this is my job. My parents go to their job. My my thing is actually going here to school because it's uh, it, it, it makes a difference in everybody's life, including my own. So let's move to lessons from the real world. Um, would you like? I can actually pull up the page that has the clip, and we could watch the thirty-second clip. Why don't I do that? So I'm gonna. Set that up right now. A web page will come up for you in the audience, and you'll see a a place um, middle right hand of your screen. Go ahead and click the play button. We'll play the trailer for that movie. We'll have you come back in about 30 seconds. Okay, so hopefully you're able to see that. If uh, for some reason it was slow for you, it didn't come up. I'm putting the link in the chat. You can watch it afterwards. So, Bob, um, tell us a little bit about the schools here and the kinds of activities that you profile. Well, uh, these particular schools, um, there's a wide range. Um, several of the schools are in, in the low-income areas of Portland, Oregon. But all the schools are in Portland, Oregon. And um, but what the schools all have in common is, or what the classes that I you know, profiled have in common is that they, again, they engage students in issues of concern to the local community or to the nation. Uh, so, for example, 
at one of the high schools, you had students uh, doing a, a, I guess it's commonly referred to as student voice. That is, they had to write, in an English class, a 10th grade English class, they had to write poems um, uh, about their lives and then talk those poems out and uh, in a, onto a fake microphone that was on a stage or a platform in front of the classroom. And they actually talk about some very personal things about um, uh, some of the, uh, about family issues, family problems, community problems, and, and so forth. So it's, it's giving students a chance to, uh, to voice things that they're vital concern to their lives at the same time as they're in an English class learning how to write. And read, uh, and and so forth. So I think that's very important, and um, and students clearly got a lot out of uh, out of that student voice project. And um, it's also uh, it was a really good way uh, to teach English. So that's that's a classroom level. On the other hand, um, there's a school. Um, the only actual well, then there's another school, uh, Sunnyside Environmental School, which is a K through eight public school. In fact, they're all public schools. Um, and uh, at that school, they focus on the environment, but the environment is um, broadly determined. So the environment is not just the physical environment, but it's the social environment, the philosophical environment, the political environment. And so I focused on, on there on two groups of students. One is two third grade classes that uh, developed a, a project. Um, Oregon wants to get more people riding their bicycles um, as a way of reducing pollution and using less energy in the city. So the third graders, um, um, after electing their own city council in the classroom and, and debating various kinds of things, uh, went out and interviewed people and did a survey to support the actual Oregon City Council uh, around this issue of getting more people to ride bikes. And so I filmed them, um, I think they're around eight years old, out interviewing people on one of the busier streets in Portland and uh, then analyzing the results on computers and tallying the results and then ultimately they presented them uh, and communicated them to the uh, city council in Portland. And then I also filmed the middle school class at the uh, also at uh, Cityside Environmental School that uh, did such projects as um, they were always out in the community, it seemed. They, uh, they, were, they were supposed to time working at the Oregon Food Bank, um, uh, bagging food for uh, low-income families. They, uh, they did a walk, several walking tours and streetcar tours to downtown Portland, and then they were asked to draw up uh, their conception of what Portland should look like or what a city, ideal city block would look like, what a park would look like. Uh, almost like an urban planner would, and then they went back to the classroom and analyzed that kind of thing. So that was an interesting kind of school, and um, um, they had also, uh, I didn't put it in the show, but they uh, all school assemblies and so forth where they debated various issues. Another school that I uh, dealt with, the only charter school, which is a public charter school, uh, Trillium Charter in Portland. Um, which is a kind of a rundown building, but the vibes in there were fantastic. And um, 
there I filmed the combination class, second, third, and fourth grade class that uh, had developed a seed company um, to raise money to rebuild their, you know, those kind of a rundown outer space around the school that they wanted to make with cobwebs and uh, fix into like a park area. Uh, that the whole school could use. And so they developed a seed company and they had to um, figure out where to get the seeds, package the seeds, um, and then they took, uh, I filmed them going to the local markets to uh, set up uh, stands where they could sell the seeds, pitching their, their, their stuff. And um, they developed such things as um, um, video displays in order to show people how to sell seeds, their fellow students how to sell seeds. They had to write uh, analysis of what they were doing. They had to do math to calculate how much money they were making and losing and so forth. And the same school, it was a K through 12, so they also had a, um, they did role playing around the Palestinian Israeli um, conflict in which people had to take. Uh, different stands on um, um, on that conflict and there was a wide range of positions and uh, as a way of putting themselves in somebody else's shoes and analyzing a complex event that's going on in the world right now and um, the same way you might analyze any kind of complex event whether it's health issues um, environmental issues and uh, and so forth and unfortunately again if we think about how complex events are often being debated today in the press and by politicians this is the complete opposite to that um, another school that uh, that, I, entered, that I, I focused on was a place called Atkinson Elementary another public school where they uh, taught four languages um, uh, let's say Vietnamese, Chinese, Spanish, and actually English, three languages in English. And um, but what made the school unique was not only the languages and the, and the uh, music aspects and the culture that flowed from those, but also the uh, uh, they had a garden, a multicultural garden, and, and part each each cultural group had their own piece of the garden. So they grew. Uh, vegetables that were germane to um, Vietnamese cuisine or uh, uh, Chinese cuisine or, or uh, uh, Spanish, Mexican, Mexican food and so forth. So, and then uh, often the surplus food was given away to the parents who might need the food at the uh, end of the growing season. So students, so what they were able to do is it was an uh, interdisciplinary curriculum, which I think is very important, and they were able to weave math, science, um, foreign language, um, music, and so forth into this living garden that was uh, the school surrounded the garden, and I thought that was a, a fairly meaningful experience that a lot of schools can engage in in terms of gardens. Um, another school I focused on um, was a public school in a suburb just out in Milwaukee, just out part of Portland. And um, there, that, that step actually opens the show. And there are uh, sixth grade students um, uh, with their own music that had to reflect an environmental project they were involved with. So they were involved in a project to say, help save a wetland. And they measured how 
invasive species that uh, grew up in the wetland and so they're able to apply math and science principles to that. They analyze pollution and streams in the wetland. But then they also took pictures uh, of plants and so forth in the wetland and trees in the wetland and they had to write music compositions around things like photosynthesis and um, what that all meant to them and then they performed the music. And and I, uh, I actually use that music to weave through the whole show. They also uh, had to write poetry around what they felt in the wetlands. They uh, wrote, um, um, they did journaling uh, around that as well. So they did math writing. Uh, they did art projects around uh, what they did in the wetlands. So it was a, t a completely interdisciplinary sixth grade educational experience. And so students coming out of that then would have an interdisciplinary analysis of, uh, of how the world works, which I think is uh, another important aspect that's being lost in uh, No Trump Left Behind and Race to the Top um, educational policy, which is when a student steps outside the classroom, most problems present themselves in an interdisciplinary fashion. Um, they don't present themselves as this is a math problem, this is an English problem, this is a science problem, this is a biology problem, but it's an interdisciplinary thing and, you, and the best way to solve it is to think in an interdisciplinary way. How can I take all the tools from all these different disciplines and apply them to solving that problem? And I think some of the schools I focused on that were affected uh, tried to do this, that is to, um, to teach things so that you could see how each each dovetails into the other. And, uh, and that's really a, a more accurate way of approaching problem solving. Unfortunately, um, not only K through 12, but universities themselves often compartmentalize curriculum into very specific aspects. And um, the students don't get that kind of experience. And I think when they don't, then they have to somehow automatically figure out when they get out of the, out of the graduate high school or elementary school or middle school or college, how do, how do I tie all those different pieces of the curriculum together on my own? So there was something about each of those projects that intrigued me, and we'll get to that in a minute. But there's a larger picture. I think the most intriguing aspect of all of them put together was that they all seem sort of radically different from this portrayal of the results of No Child Left Behind. So how are these schools doing this? Who's supporting them? Or how are they bucking the trend? How are they able to maintain this kind of an education as public schools with expectations that other schools are are buckling under? Well, I should say that um, not every school in Portland, Oregon is like this. Um, but there's, there's a, one of the things that is supportive of a, um, the school district there are two things. One is that you have a, a large number of teachers that meet regularly, that um, support each other, that mentor each other. And um, and so if a teacher is isolated at a particular school, they can get support from other teachers or they can get ideas of how to, how to uh, weave these things through their classroom or their cur curriculum. So I think it's important to have a network of teachers, particularly in an environment like this where there's tremendous pressure on teachers just to teach the test. 
Not all cities have that. But it could be created in almost any city. It's just that it happened to take place in, in Portland, and that's what enabled me to actually get into a lot of these questions very quickly. And the second thing that I think is typical of most all these schools is there's a lot of parental involvement. So um, parents want to see uh, Portland's a fairly progressive city, and I think parents, a lot of parents would like to see their students um, learning other things besides teaching to the test. They want to see their kids come home excited about what they've learned in the classroom. And so you see quite a few parent volunteers at the schools, not all the schools, but at the elementary school level, I think there's a lot of the um, ones I focused on there, there's a lot of uh, parental support. That doesn't mean parents were there all the time, but they had a, a strong uh, parent groups and so forth. Um, on the other hand, there's uh, there's countervailing uh, state pressures in, in Oregon and uh, particularly in California and, and all across the country that go in the opposite direction. But I think if you, the particular schools I focused on, that uh, you had, um, um, again, mentor teachers, you had a strong teacher support network, you had a parent support network uh, that seemed to make uh, these schools stand out and these, these, these schools work. You know, I, that's a really good description, and I'm still left wondering, uh, is there a principal there who's taking the heat? You know, is there uh, or a, uh, a school board um, uh, in the administrative positions? Are they getting support that maybe other schools aren't? Well, I um, I think in some cases the principals are under a lot of fire. Um, so I, it's not always um, that the that the larger. Um, um, Board, you know, board of Education is always supportive of, of these types of educational programs, but uh, the principals either had enough security or enough other kinds of support that they were able to withstand that or enough popularity to withstand that. Um, I think you raised a good point, which is that it's not only the teachers and the parents, but usually what drives this is a strong, is a strong principal. That is uh, a principal that is willing to take the heat. That, is, that says what we're doing is not working. Or a strong uh, a superintendent of schools who says we want to do something different. In uh, in Hudson, um, Shelley Berman uh, or Sheldon Berman, who was the superintendent at that time, he went on to Louisville, and I think now he's in Eugene, Oregon. Um, but he, he clearly believed in, he was one of the founders of uh, Educators for Social Responsibility, and he, and he clearly believed that, that, that we had to do something differently, or his school district had to do something differently, and, and I think he clearly drove that, that uh, discussion and clearly drove the curriculum. So it is important to have a strong leadership. and. Um, and I think that's particularly the case. Uh, my earlier film on um, education for one on service learning, uh, Portland State University is probably the leading service learning uh, university in the country. They require all, virtually all of their students to do two, to do two quarters of 
of a service learning in the community, working on community problems from an interdisciplinary perspective. And that's why I originally went to Portland in 2003 and um, to film their activities. But that was driven by a strong provost and a strong president, university president, who were able to bring the faculty on board and say, this is something we really want to do. On the other hand, there's plenty of universities and colleges where service learning isn't a top priority. And um, there's plenty of public schools where this type of education is not a strong priority either. And I think um, in those cases, superintendents and principals can repeat that process. There was um, in the vignette on the student selling the seeds and the teacher, I think it's the teacher of that class who says, at one point that he thinks his student scores are actually higher than other students who weren't doing that kind of engaged activity. Do you think that's measurable? I, I asked virtually all the teachers that I interviewed about test scores, and, and most of them said they were either comparable or higher um, than um, students doing regular classes. And I, I think it is measurable. You could just give students a traditional math test or uh, you know a language arts test uh, and uh, and compare the results. But I think the more more important thing is that not only are students motivated to do math and reading at or above the level of other students, but they're learning other things as well. I mean, other things that are certainly uh, of equal validity in their lives and that will underlie their motivation to do more reading or higher level math and so forth. And so it's those other things that are I think we should be focusing on, you know, what are students actually getting out of their education? It's not just higher test scores to have higher test scores, it's what kind of society we're going to have. But I think the important point there is that um, instead of worrying about so much about the, if students are doing equal or above on math and reading, what are the other things that they're actually learning from the educational system? Are they learning just to that education is really boring, or are they learning that hey, education can really make a difference in the society and in our lives? And, and we're learning all these other things as well. We're learning how the political system works. We're learning how to, how to think about social change. We're learning how different disciplines weave together to, to get a better analysis or more accurate analysis of what's going on in the world. So I think those are the things that um, we should think about. How do we evaluate those things? And I think they're often evaluated by um, what the students end up doing with their lives. So we've got about 10 minutes to go. I have a couple more questions, but uh, I want to make sure that if anybody from the audience has a question that they ask it. Carolyn does ask whether or not um, she, she's thinking about uh, a place to aggregate all these great examples to, to potentially allow for emulation and then innovation, uh, sort of a clearinghouse of these kinds of activities. And she's wondering if it has to be either or. Couldn't these projects be blended in tra to traditional learning as well? Um, well, I think traditional learning does uh, go on. And it's Excuse me. I think traditional learning does take place uh, within the context of these projects. I mean, if a student 
if there's a you know the students want to improve some aspect of the community and they end up reading about those that aspect and then they have to learn how to read in order to do that or they have to do math around that or they have to learn certain science principles but you know the basic level the further advanced that goes and the more they have to learn about those things so I think um, that's a traditional con uh, you know um, context and I should emphasize um, I think this came out of lessons from the real world that it takes a certain type of teacher to really uh, to deal with this kind of um, educational experience. So one good teacher at Sunnyside uh, Environmental School, a third grade teacher, pointed out that if you're the kind of teacher that, uh, or like a lot of districts right now, everybody in the district's on the same page at the same hour at the same time, this type of curriculum's not going to work because um, for them. Because uh, uh, often you have to be flexible, you have to give students a certain amount of control. On the other hand, you have to kind of guide where the students are going. And so um, it takes a kind of a flexible teacher. So that raises the question of what type of college of education is going to promote that kind of uh, teaching. And second of all, how do we actually get teachers to feel secure in their own uh, political experience to be able to act as mentors for their students. In other words, we need teachers that themselves analyze the world in an interdisciplinary fashion, teachers that also are actively engaged in the political process. And so um, I think it all it all kind of weaves together. You can't just take teachers that are um, have been educated in a, in a traditional format and say go out and do this kind of a different type of education. It just doesn't work. We've talked a lot on the show about the sort of cultural narratives around education, and the, you know, for for me, the intriguing story of Finland really is how did they align themselves together around an idea that trusted educators? Um, you know, what was the process? Who were the people involved that were able to communicate well enough that the culture itself aligned around a new narrative of education? And it seems like that's sort of what you're saying, which is we you know have a lot of different voices that would have to come together to agree to make this the majority and not the minority story. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's, um, you know, teachers all over the country that probably agree with some of what we've talked about and um, are, are engaged in some of these activities, but often in isolation from each other, and so there has to be a way of networking them. I think. Uh, uh, Rethinking Schools magazine and the organization tries to do that, and there's some other organizations that try to do that. But again, it's just uh, it's a small group out of a uh, out of a very large number. So um, the question is, how how do we build that kind of narrative? How do we support teachers? And, I, and you know, and unfortunately, given what happened in Wisconsin and so forth, that. A lot of teachers are under fire, and a lot of teachers feel insecure about their jobs. A lot of teachers have lost their jobs, 
And so in that kind of environment, it becomes difficult to say, well, how do I go out of engaging in something that looks like progressive education or alternative education? I'm just trying to hold on to my teaching position. And say for new teachers coming out, how are they going to go out and do this kind of thing in the context of i got to hold on to my job or I have to try and get a tenured position and so forth? So it makes it hard, but I think it's important, and I think there's a lot of underlying energy there to want to do this. There's a tremendous, one of the things that No Child Left Behind, I think Grace at the top will demonstrate, is that um, there's tremendous teacher burnout. The teachers are leaving the profession um, in large numbers that, um, you know, um, because uh, they don't feel they have any control over their classrooms anymore and uh, they're not engaged in the kind of education that maybe they thought they would be engaged in. So I think there's a lot of potential to create a, a political movement around changing the, the curriculum and not just political movement but as you pointed out a, a, a new narrative around what education should be but Again, the press seems to be constantly dominated by these are the test scores of these schools um, and they publish them in all the papers and uh, that's what they seem to be focused on. But um, um, So the narrative has to be driven in the other, another direction. That's actually why I did both uh, No Child Left, uh, the uh, Democracy Left Behind and Lessons from the Real World. Now I tried to get it on as many PBS stations as possible to um, you know, to uh, try and raise people's awareness of what might be the possibilities of, of public education. You don't talk about the media, or at least I don't remember that you did. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of increasingly wondering about the sort of social conformity of commercialism and the degree to which the media is driven by commercial um, entities. Um, what role do you see the media playing in our thinking about education? Well, potentially, uh, the media could play a great role. I mean, um, it would be great to have a couple of um, not just sitcoms, but dramas, weekly dramas on, uh, on television about uh, teachers doing this experimenting with different types of education is just a great getting people talking about that. Um, I always thought there should be a show around community organizing um, and a whole wide range of shows like that portraying even state legislator, you know, um, where you could, you know, you could have some serious drama, you could have some romance. Uh, and so forth, but they would be actually dealing with real issues, trying to solve real problems um, um, in the society. And so people would see role models for that in terms of earlier television. PBS, uh, where I, um, um, on PBS stations where I, I try and get most of my, my material, um, again, uh, most PBS stations don't um, air that many documentaries. and. Um, um, so maybe what we need is, you know, some sort of educational uh, network for, um, where documentaries and, and talk shows and other kinds of things could go on 24 hours a day around, this is what I've tried in my classroom, this is how we can make a difference, and um, then people could tune into that, and I, and I, I would pour it through YouTube or something like that, or through what you're doing. We've just got a couple minutes left. Uh, one question in the chat was, 
What do you think about the Common Core standards? Well, on the one hand, um, I guess I'm somewhat supportive uh, that we ought to have some sort of national standards. On the other hand, I think the way they're articulated has to come through local issues and, and um, um, again, place-based education. So um, I think they wanted to create national standards because some schools, they felt some school districts were falling uh, way behind, which is why No Child Left Behind. Um, the motivation for creating the No Child Left Behind legislation. Um, but I think what has happened as a result of that often is, is that the Common Core standards have become this um, excuse to standardize the whole curriculum and, and not uh, and take away local control of a lot of the schools. And so then teachers lose local control over their classrooms and they're not able to focus on issues that are germane to their students. So I think. If we kept in mind in the background that we need a common educational experience in terms of like, everybody needs to learn certain basic things, but how do we do that? How do we articulate it? And then uh, and what does that actually mean? You know, why, maybe there ought to be also a common core standard again around political literacy. Uh, because we're, we're minutes away from finishing, I wanted to get to another quick question. Um, Carolyn's asking if any of your films are available online in the streaming version or through PBS. Um, my films are sold through various distributors and they're all, if you go on my website, um, each of the films connects with the, the relevant distributor. Um, for a while I sold each show off my website, but then I just did that for the, like, the first six months and then but now they're all national distribution. So um, if anybody wants one or you want your school district to have one, um, um, if they're too expensive, then uh, you can order them through uh, distributors. Uh, both Democracy Left Behind and Lessons from the Real World are distributed by Films for the Humanities and Sciences, which is the largest um, distributor of documentaries in the country. and. Um, uh, probably in the world, actually. Uh, and, and I think they stream them. And, or you can just, uh, uh, if you're on a, in a school district or a college campus, you're able to access them without paying a huge amount of money. So anyhow, if you go on my website, documentaryonline.com, um, I think you're getting, getting access to those. Um, Lessons from the Real World has been airing the last uh, seven months on various PBS stations, and it seems to be continuing there, and, and on a lot of stations prime time, such as in Chicago. Um, anyhow, various, it's there in about 60% uh, of the market. So if someone searches, they, should, they might be able to find it broadcasting currently in their local area. Yeah, they can find it or they can um, call their local PBS station who uh, they all have access to it and ask them to uh, either repeat it or, uh, or play it. Tell them it was distributed. <laughs> and if they do do that, they can just say it was distributed by NETA, which is one of the uh, uh, groups that feeds to PBS stations nationwide, NETA. Bob, we've reached the top of the hour. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. 
really appreciate your work and your being willing to do this interview. Do this interview. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Our pleasure. Uh, if you want to clap for Bob, look for the smiley face icon in the practice window and then go down to applause. I wish that were its own icon button. That's going to be my next suggestion. But anyway, terrific. Uh, having Bob Glitter on the show tonight. Coming up next week, Cecilia D'Olivero on OpenCourseWare and Bruce Umstead, Ashley McDonald, Allison Rockwell, Tom Johnson, and Amber Co-Watch on iPads in the classroom. And lots more coming up. Thanks again, Bob. Terrific to have you on. Thank you, and good luck. Appreciate it. Appreciate you getting to San Jose State to make sure everything went well. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us. Uh, we, I will pause the recording at this point, and then do need you to exit the room for the recording to process. Thanks for joining us, and uh, talk to you next time. <laughs>